if receiving is the main thing, can we learn to block and throw from our receiving position, from our receiving stance? And I don't think the industry has always looked at it that way. I think it's really been the other way around. It's I'm going to try to become the best receiver I can be from this block and throw stance. Not a single catcher in baseball is a better pitch framer from a big active secondary stance. Hello and welcome to episode 100 of AOTC. I want to take a moment to say thank you so much for listening and investing your time. In a little over a year and a half, there have been over 200,000 listeners in 91 countries around the world. So thank you so much for listening and sharing because without you, it wouldn't be possible to do something I love. And with you, we are growing the game worldwide. This episode is brought to you by Baseball Cloud. Baseball Cloud's revolutionary software platform brings to life the numbers captured by TrackMan and FlightScope. This provides colleges, players, and facility owners around the world a turnkey product, allowing them to analyze their data using key metrics and custom visualizations on one intuitive user interface. Go to BaseballCloud.com to find out how you can have your own data analytics department for your program. Data has a story to tell, and Baseball Cloud gives it a voice. On today's show, we have an outstanding guest and Minnesota Twins catching coordinator, Tanner Swanson. Tanner joined the Twins after a brief stint at Santa Clara University in 2017, and he spent the previous five seasons at the University of Washington. Tanner was responsible for the mentorship of the Husky catchers, and during his tenure, UW catchers garnered four All-Pac-12 conference selections and one All-American honor. Under Swanson's tutelage, UW witnessed its two highest drafted catchers in the 117-year history of the program. Prior to joining UW in 2011, Tanner was the head baseball coach at Green River Community College for one season and was an assistant coach at Central Washington University and Everett Community College. Tanner also spent two years as a health education teacher at Sultan High School before resigning to pursue a master's degree in collegiate coaching full-time. On today's show, Tanner and I take a deep dive into receiving and framing, and he shares some incredible insight into the importance and mechanics of framing metrics. We also talk about how varying setups and hand positions affect outcomes. We talk about three keys to high-level throwing, And finally, we talk about the importance of on-field communication for catchers. You're going to love this episode. And here is Tanner Swanson. Tanner, thanks for joining us on Ahead of the Curve today. Thanks, Jonathan. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And we are, you know, smack dab in the middle of a high school season. And you guys just got started. And so I'm so glad we were able to find some time to sit down because I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while but for our listeners who want to get to know you a little bit better, can you give us a short snapshot of why you decided to get into coaching? Yeah, I, I can't say that it was, you know, an intentional uh, decision. Um, you know, I, I did obviously grow up uh, um, participating in in sports, of, you know, a variety of different sports. I grew up in a small town and, and always had a vested interest in, in competing. And, you know, I played baseball, basketball, football, and um you know, in a small community and, and had really positive experiences and really positive connections with, with coaches. And, you know, I went into to school, I, I studied in college, you know, kinesiology, physical education, actually, but, but really started to, to gain an interest in, in um, how to acquire skill, how to teach skills appropriately, motor learning, those types of things. And, and, and actually fresh out of college, you know, taught for a couple of years and, 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 and really I've always had a passion for teaching. And, you know, at the same time I, I started dabbling in, in, in coaching and, um, just slowly found my, my interest, you know, gravitating to the coaching side, um, more so than the classroom. And, and I think the two really parallel each other in a lot of ways, you know, so that's kind of where it started organically, sort of speak. And, and, you know, the high school level and, and dabbled at the junior college level and, and had a chance to go back to my alma mater, Central Washington University. And and uh, I actually taught there for a year at the university and, and helped out with the baseball program. And that led to a, a head junior college, you know, I left that position to, to really dive in full time um, on the coaching side and 
um, spent a year at Green River Community College as a head coach, and um, that transitioned to the University of Washington as I was, you know, working on my master's degree mm-hmm. um, at Seattle University, and um, was was at the University of Washington as a really as a graduate assistant, um, student manager, I, I think is what the title officially was, and mm-hmm. um, and kind of just became engulfed in it, and that's it was never really an intentional decision other than I, I knew I wanted to teach and, and impact kids, players, youth, um, in, in some fashion and, and give back to the game if I, if I could, you know, and, and here we are. I absolutely love it. And so how, you know, how does your teaching background or really being a teacher at heart, how does that affect your coaching? Um, uh, I, I think at the, at the, the root of it, you know, coaches are teachers, you know, that's what we do. Um, at least that's that's my perspective and and i've always taken that approach you know our our classroom is the field um the cage um you know a training environment but you know i i consider myself a really curious you know person and and you know so being able to utilize you know whatever information is available to to then transfer you know into um some type of, of training setting that that players can can then uh, utilize to improve their game i think that's i think coaching is teaching and and parallel each other in in a lot of ways so um, i feel like i'm a teacher at heart and and i think most coaches would would probably you know agree that you know that's what we do We're, we're we're teaching baseball you know it's it's not that different than than any other subject matter um in my opinion well i may be slightly biased but i i really do love that answer and uh, and another interesting fact that I found out about you is you actually weren't a catcher growing up. So talk to us about how you actually got into it and, and how that has affected how you teach the catching position. Yeah, the cap's out of the bag on, on that one. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I really think that it's, it's, it's helped me to be honest. Um, you know, you know, I, I have a, a really fresh perspective. I think that, you know, right, wrong or indifferent. Um, you know, I'm not clouded with, with bias about this is how I was taught. This is how I used to do it. You know, so I really feel like I get to look at each component of the position really objectively. And, and I think when you do that, when you step back, you know, and and look at anything, you know, from a distance, you know, there's a lot of things that, that maybe have been done a certain way that, that don't maybe make a lot of sense. And, and you can really start to question and, and peel back the layers and, and say, Hey, is there a better way to do this? And, uh, where do we start? And, and so, you know, I, I feel like I have more questions than, than answers, you know, when it comes to catching mm-hmm. specifically, and, but I think that's where, where good ideas and, um, inspiration and creativity, you know, are, are drawn from, I think, asking the right questions. So, you know, we're, we're definitely, I think pushing the envelope in the catching space and, and trying to explore some, some new ideas and new things. But, um, I really got thrown into it. You know, my, my first year at the university of Washington catching is, is where they needed my help. Um, I really had no background other than, you know, I, I, I caught as a kid, my dad actually, you know, played some professional baseball as a catcher, um, for the Portland Mavericks, which was an independent, um, team out here in the Northwest. You know, so I've always really been curious and interested and in, in around the position, but hadn't had a lot of experience coaching it um, until I got to the University of Washington and was, was kind of thrown into it. Um, and that's pretty typical. You know, the, the youngest, most experienced, inexperienced coach often is, you know, the, the coach responsible for the catchers. You know, and I think, you know, looking back on my experience at UW, and I was there for five years, you know, and in the entire time I was the volunteer assistant, uh, which means I, I, you know, wasn't allowed to, to leave campus to, to recruit. Um, I think a lot of coaches, you know, at that level where recruiting is, is so prominent and it's in a lot of ways, the, the bloodline um, of most programs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of coaches are often divided in terms of how they spend their time and energy um, between, you know, player development and, being on the road and, and recruiting and, and trying to find, you know, the next crop of players. And, and I think the, the, again, the silver lining from my experience is that I wasn't torn. I, I had one focus um, and that was really to, to drive our, our catching development and, and help our catchers get better. So I, I got to spend a hundred percent of my, my energy 
on learning the position um, and working directly with our players to, to try to improve. So I think that was the, the best thing that, that could have happened for my career and, and my own personal growth as a coach. Um, and largely part of the reason, you know, I wasn't in a hurry to, to leave there for a, you know, a, a paid position um, in a recruiting role. Um, I was really enjoying, you know, being able to dig in on the details and um, explore things that I had questions about. And, you know, so looking back on all that, I, I think it's, it set me up and prepared me really well for the position I'm in now. Perfect. And so my dad was a pitcher, so I inevitably was a catcher uh, growing up. And they always talked about that the catching position, you were, you were a quarterback and you're directing traffic, you're doing all of this different stuff on the field. And then I heard your ABCA presentation a, a couple of years ago now, and you didn't like that. You talked about them being a middle linebacker because quarterbacks aren't as tough as middle linebackers are. And I love that. Do you, do you mind just, you know, taking us through what you meant by that? Yeah. I, I, you know, aside from the toughness piece, I think that was not that quarterbacks aren't tough. I think it had less to do with, you know, toughness and more to do with just the demands of kind of the position, right? The, mm-hmm. the quarterback um, gets to direct, you know, he gets to choose when he throws the ball, where he throws the ball. Um, he's in complete command and control of when things happen. And, and, and I think that more closely resembles, you know, the, the role of, of a pitcher, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily a catcher. I think a catcher has to be very um, instinctive, very reactive, um, has to have, you know, really advanced, I think, perceptual skills to be able to read, react, and, and respond to, you know, a lot of different variables in a, in a really short amount of time. And, and I think that, you know, more closely resembles what you see middle linebackers have to do on the field. You know, one of my best friends, is you know works for the seattle seahawks he's uh, director of pro personnel and and so we talk a lot about just coaching in in general and development and and you know so talking with him about describing kind of what are the 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 constraints that catchers deal with and you know what position does that you know more closely resemble on the field just to draw that parallel um i think i like drawing parallels from from other sports and other disciplines and i think there's a lot to learn you know, from coaches, you know, across the, the entire industry. Um, so we, we, we've had a lot of discussions about this concept in general, but I, I think it, it does apply. And, and I think we, there's a lot of demands on, on the catcher to be able to do a lot of different things, you know, under a really tight time constraint. And for that reason, I think it's, it's one of the toughest positions, if not the toughest positions to, to play at a, at a high level, you know, across sport, it's, it's you know, significantly, uh, it's very challenging and, you know, which is why not a lot of people do it well. <laughs> sure. Absolutely true. And so when we're talking about amateur players and you, you mentioned before the show that there's some technical differences between pro guys and amateur guys, but for, for a, uh, for the most part, a bulk of our audience is in the amateur realm. So say that I'm an amateur catcher, I'm a high school kid, and I'm coming to you for help. You know, where would you start? And just kind of walk us through what that would look like. I think where I would start is, is, is I, I think developing, you know, a, a very versatile, well-rounded skill set is, is, needs to be the foundation. You know, even at the amateur level, I think you have to be able to do a lot of things at a, at a, you know, semi-proficient level to even be able to advance to the next level, you know? And, and, um, so that, that would include, you know, being able to obviously receive and to block and to throw and to potentially some game calling principles, you know, unless those, your coach, you know, is assuming those responsibilities and how to manage a staff and, and all the specialties, the bunts, the, the pop-ups, you know, I think all those things are really important. And I think you need to, um, expose, you know, amateur players as much of that as possible and, and really hone in on the fundamentals. But I think as, as you advance and, and as you um, move to higher levels, I, I think it's important to, to really start prioritizing, you know, your training economy based on what actually happens, you know, in competition. Um, and, and, you know, we receive the ball as catchers more so than, than anything else that we do. And as a result, you know, 
at our level, the professional level, we spend a majority of our time working on receiving, working on pitch framing and kind of honing in and, and pulling back the, the layers um, in that space to, to try to create competitive advantages and, and improve. And not, not to say that, that blocking and throwing aren't uh, valuable. You know, we, we want to do those things as well. But, but I think prioritizing, you know, your training based on what actually happens in the game and, and, and then reflecting on, you know, how you're doing that. I, I mean, if we're working on catcher pop-ups two or three times a week, and, and if you can honestly maybe go back and reflect on the previous season and, and say, okay, how many times did this skill, you know, actually um, come up in a game and, and did we appropriately allocate our time to reflect the things that, that are actually happening the most often, you know, what is the main thing and, and how do we keep the main thing, the main thing mm-hmm. um, and, and create training environments that, that resemble that, you know, so uh, that would be my long answer to a, a rather short question, but, <laughs> but I think the receiving, you know, definitely trumps, you know, everything. Um, as you advance to higher levels and, and really honing in on that skill, mm-hmm. I think it's critical. Sure, sure. And so I just, you know, I'm going to throw some different things at you a little bit and just kind of hear your thoughts on it. But if we're starting with setup, let, let's say that we're starting with setup, what, uh, for our listeners who are really, you know, let's let's just pretend like I have no idea what, what to look for. What are you looking for in setup? And, you know, just kind of walk us through that a little bit. I think the setup needs to be obviously needs to be comfortable. Um, okay. You know, it's a position that you're in, you know, often. And, mm-hmm. um, but I think above all, it's, it, it needs to, you need to find a position that allows you the, the freedom to be able to receive the ball to all parts of the strike zone okay. um, without any constraints. And, and I think sometimes our stance, especially, you know, looking at, at amateur players that, uh, kids are always fighting their stance or always um, struggling with their positioning. And, and when I set up this way, I really struggle to this pitch. And if I, if I set up this way, I don't feel like I can get to the ground to block or mm-hmm. um, so trying to simplify the, the positioning. And, and we're doing a lot of work in this space, which I'd rather not get in, in the weeds okay. um, sure. or, or going too much in depth. But, but I think the positioning is, is critical and being able to get into a position that, that you can optimize the strike zone to the best of your ability with limited constraints. And, you know, for us, that's, you know, we do, we are doing a lot of knee down stuff. And, Mm -hmm. and, and in my opinion, for a lot of our players, at least, and this is, I think needs to be individualized, but you need to find what the most optimal position is and then get into that position as often as possible, if not exclusively. I mean, if, if receiving is the main thing, can we learn to block and throw from our receiving position from our receiving stance? And, and I don't think the industry has always looked at it that way. I think it's, it's really been the other way around. It's, it's, I'm going to try to become the best receiver I can be from this block and throw stance. And I think, again, if we look back at, at just the economy of what's actually happening, you know, we, I think one of the major flaws in, in catching today is, is you see catchers up in this, this big active stance, ready to block, ready to throw, yet the ball rarely ends up in the dirt and we rarely ever have to make a throw, uh-huh. um, you know, and it, it's just not an optimal receiving position and, and we lose strikes, you know, as, as a result. Um, not a single catcher in baseball is a better pitch framer from a, a big active secondary stance, um, you know, across the board, framing metrics um, decrease, you know, with the influence of blocking and throwing. So as soon as you see runners on base uh, across the industry, catchers, their pitch framing, um, decreases. And, and it, I think that's directly related to the positioning and, and guys are in a, in a lot of, um, scenarios unnecessarily in these, these big active, ready to throw, ready to block stances. And so I think you can, we can rethink and be more intentional about how we pick and choose, the positioning, but I think ultimately if we can learn how to block and throw out of a, a receiving position, um, not the other way around, but in, in my mind, at least that makes sense. And, sure. um, and I think, I think it can be done. And, and, you know, a lot of our guys are, I've had some success doing it. Yeah, for sure. So with the one knee, whenever you're getting down, does it matter which leg you're putting down? 
Yeah, there's a, a lot of variables at play there, and, and okay. if, if you kind of dig into to any of the the positioning that that our guys are are experimenting with, it's you see a variety of different kickstands, which mm-hmm. which is not revolutionary. Um, you know, you go back to Tony Pena and, mm-hmm. and others. You know, back in the day, we're we're utilizing a lot of these same positioning. You know, we just didn't have the 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 metrics to be able to objectively you know quantify whether it was helping catchers create strikes or not you know and, and now we we have access to that kind of information and, and can be uh, more strategic in the, the types of setups we utilize in various situations so so our, our guys will go right knee down they'll go left knee down they'll go left knee or left leg extended right leg extended and and um, we we do it in a variety of, of of different ways for a variety of different reasons and and really what we're, we've tried to do is is kind of narrow down the scope of, of what we think is is most likely going to happen. So um, an example would be, and I, I, I use uh, this parallel to hitting. I think hitters, when they step in the box, or even before they step in the box, as they're starting to, to formulate a, an approach, um, the hitters try to eliminate pitches, right? They watch the pitcher and say, okay, this guy's got no feel for his changeup today. Mm-hmm. I take him from a three-pitch guy down to a two-pitch guy. He's a, he's a fastball slider guy. I've eliminated a pitch. Um, and I think catchers can largely do the same thing. I think if they're, if they're trying to do all three things at the same time, you know, they're trying to receive block and throw, it's really, really challenging. And I think as a result, they, they do none of them well um, and, and are pretty average across the board. Um, but, but if I can call a pitch and I can say I have a bad runner on first base and we're up six in the eighth inning, um, the game tells me that this guy is not going to run, right? And let's say I call a fastball. So it, it really decreases my likelihood of having to block that much more, you know, so, or, or th- throw, for example. So mm-hmm. I can eliminate really in that scenario, the block and the throw based on the score, the pitch type, the runner, et cetera. Um, and I can focus on the thing that's likely going to happen, which is, you know, a fastball somewhere over the plate. Um, I'm not going to have to make a throw because the score um, tells me that. And then the speed of the runner and it's a fastball. So it's likely not going to be in the dirt. So I, I can really narrow down what, what's likely going to happen and what's reasonable to expect the catcher to be have or to have to do in that moment for that mm-hmm. particular pitch. Right. And I think that just simplifies the process and, and, and now they can make the main thing, the main thing and get into a position to um, allow them to do that at a high level. And, and we do that every pitch of every game We're we're, you know, taking all those inputs and, and making a decision on what position we get in based on, you know, all these different variables. So um, it's, it's been a process of experimentation and um, we're still, you know, learning and and trying to figure out better ways to do it but the takeaway is is i think there's more than two stances and a lot of amateur catchers are when nobody's on base they're in this primary position and as soon as a runner's on base they're all of a sudden in this this other stance and they have two stances you know Mm -hmm. runners on and no runners on and and i think it's more complex than that and you know if, if we can avoid getting in these big active secondary stances um, because it's maybe unnecessary or doesn't make a lot of sense, then we're encouraging our guys to do so. Let me take a few seconds to tell you guys about OnBaseU. OnBase University is an organization that studies how the human body moves in baseball and softball. They offer certification seminars that teach coaches, trainers, and medical professionals how to assess an athlete's physical ability to perform movement patterns that are specific to hitting and pitching. For example, they just put up a blog on their website, onbaseu.com, that discussed why hip internal rotation is important in hitting and how they evaluate it with their OnBaseU screen. If you want to learn more about OnBaseU, I did a podcast with OnBaseU founder, Dr. Greg Rose, episode 78, who talked about this and modeled the screen after golf assessments that he created for TPI. They are hosting pitching and hitting seminars in Newark, Houston, and Chicago over the next few months. And I will be attending the one in Houston, and I hope to see you there. Sure. So I'm thinking, you know, as far as amateur pitchers go, uh, with two strikes, I mean, ball could be anywhere. And if we're 
if we're teaching our guys to do the one knee, would you recommend that with two strikes as well, based on just the unpredictability of, of where the pitcher and where the pitch is going to go? I, I'd say this, and um, they're stealing a strike or, um, you know, let's just, in, in OO strike, first mm-hmm. pitch of an at-bat, to, to steal that strike is, um, stealing a strike at any time is great, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there's not a single count in baseball that favors the hitter with the addition of a strike, you sure. know, and I don't think there's, there's a harder time to hit in our game than today. Mm-hmm. Velocity is, it continues to, to rise movement quality, pitch usage. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of advances on the pitching side that, you know, continue to make hitting harder and harder and harder. All right. So anytime we can add a strike, you know, significantly helps our pitching staff, our ability to, to limit runs, you know, optimize strikeouts, et cetera. So, um, but, but anyway, stealing an OO strike is, is great, right? But a hitter can still, you know, hit a home run, a, a pitch later, two pitches later, right? Mm-hmm. Steal, when you steal a strike with two strikes, it ends the at-bat, right? The, the, the run expectancy is zero. And that's, I think, the best outcome in baseball is, is the strikeout. And so one thing I've struggled with is that, you know, catchers get in these really good positions let's just say with nobody on base and, um, and they're doing a really good job capturing the strike zone. And now all of a sudden we get to two strikes and, and we do something the complete opposite. You know, mm-hmm. we get up in this big drastic block stance and, and now we can't finish in at bat and we let a hitter maybe creep into it back into it. And so uh, my, my long answer would be, it depends, you know, um, mm-hmm. I, I think if, if receiving is the, is the most important thing, then, trying to end an at bat on this pitch with two strikes, you know, you should get into whatever position allows you to do so um, the best. And gotcha. if that's one knee, that's one knee. If it's some other position, it's some other position. If you think it's a big secondary active position, um, then, you know, so be it. But I think I would caution players to, to leave their most optimal receiving stance just because, you know, we get the two strikes. I think, um, you know, there's, there's obviously other factors at play, you know, what's the inning, what's the score are, you know, are there runners, um, you know, how critical is this block? What's the, the likelihood that this ball is in the dirt? Um, how much trust and field is, or do I have them with the guy on the mound? So it's with none of this stuff, I think it's, it's never black and white and there's a, a ton of variables that, um, need to be considered, but in general, I would say just because we get the two strikes doesn't mean the approach should change, you know, drastically. Perfect. Uh, thank you for going so in depth with that too. And, you know, something else that I, I don't, I've never had two catching guys agree on, and that's, you know, where does the where does the throwing hand go with a runner at first base? Because I, I was always taught, you know, put it behind your glove because you don't want it to get hit, but inevitably you move the glove and you don't move your throwing hand. So, what are your thoughts on that? Right. You know, it's you can't mitigate all the risks when it when it comes to to foul tips. I think a couple things um, you can do to to try to reduce them. Or I think a you know set setting up it is as tight to the hitter as possible. I think helps. I think guys that, that repeatedly get hit with foul tips are generally too far away. They set up too far away from the hitter okay. um, and allow too much space um, for the ball to be able to to change directions you know, away from your glove and, and potentially into your body. So mm-hmm. first and foremost, I think setting up tight to the hitter is, is really, really important for a lot of reasons, but that being one of them, um, you know, the other thing is foul tips, you know, they don't go right through the barrel. They, they, you know, they go up or down. Right. So I think as, as long as the hand is on the same height as your glove, I think you're generally okay, right? The, the glove is going to track to the same height as the pitch, and then the bat is going to redirect it either up or down, you know? So I think as, as long as the hand is on the same height as the glove, you know, it's generally safe, um, you know? So the way we're teaching it is, is we definitely don't want it behind the back for um, the reason you just mentioned. It, it inevitably leaks out if, if a runner takes off, and then it's really exposed. So we don't necessarily want it pressed up against the glove. I think this is a, a one-handed game, and we want to promote a one-handed catch. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's also it's not tucked up tight to my chest. It's kind of somewhere in between. So it's in that void space between the glove and your chest, but on the same height as the glove. 
sure. um, I think is, is, is generally a safe, I don't even want to use safe because it's, it's not safe, but it's mm-hmm. safer. Gotcha. Um, so that, that's, that's how we're teaching it. Uh, it doesn't mean it's right, but um, we haven't knock on wood had many issues with, with foul tips off the hand. I gotcha. Perfect. So let's go ahead and move forward to the receiving part. And I'm sure we could do an entire show over that, but just, you know, another short question for, a, a, I'm assuming a long answer you know, what are we looking for as far as receiving goes? Where do you want, where would, do you want your guys to place the glove for the most part? And, you know, wh- how can we tell, at least if we're watching on TV, we're watching amateurs, how can we tell the guys that are really good at receiving from the guys who aren't? Well, I, I think there's, there's a lot in that question. I'll, I'll try to yeah. um, attack some parts, but I think generally um, what's changed the most from a receiving standpoint is, is just the intent to manipulate the baseball. I think, it's pretty tough to dispute. Um, and I feel comfortable sharing this because it's, it, it's, it's really tough to dispute that, you know, the best guys in the game are, are moving the baseball. They're egregiously manipulating the ball back to the strike zone. Um, and that's not just the Minnesota twins. That's really across the industry. If, you, if you're, if you're paying any attention to, you know, what some of the more elite pitch framers are doing in, in our game today, you look at the Tyler flowers or the max Stassi's or, uh, Yasmani Grandals or Austin Barnes or like there's those guys are they're manipulating the ball and I think that's changed the most over the last five or so years you know when I first started coaching catchers you know it was present the pitch where it's pitched you know stick it hold it you know there there wasn't a lot of teach in terms of trying to move balls back to the strike zone and and the more and more I watch you know some of the more elite guys you know, that's, it's really challenged my perspective that, you know, moving the ball is, is effective and, mm-hmm. um, whether umpires like it or not, whether old school coach, you know, catching guys like it or not, like it's, it's guys are being rewarded for it. And I think at the end of the day, um, catchers are being evaluated largely on their ability to create strikes. And if, if this method, um, allows catchers to do so at a higher rate than those that don't, then, you know, that's good enough for me. And, and so I think manipulating the ball is, is the biggest difference um, so far. I think uh, another piece is, is really understanding what the movement quality is or the movement qualities of, of the guy you're, you're catching, right? Is he a, is he a sinker ball guy? Is he a sinker ball slider guy? Or is he more of a four seam carry guy that pitches kind of at the more at the top of the strike zone? Um, is he, kind of just an average across the board and, and really relies on, you know, mixing all his pitches. So I think understanding your pitcher's mix and, and what are his, his pitch qualities um, will help from a targeting standpoint um, because catchers don't cover the entire strike zone mm-hmm. the same, right? Just like a hitter doesn't cover the entire strike zone. If you look at catcher heat maps, guys that are good down, you know, generally struggle up. Um, guys that struggle up or um, are good down and same thing in and out. So, um, you have to, I think, pick, you know, which parts of the strike zone you want to best try to optimize. And maybe at the amateur levels, it's, it's pretty general, you know, and maybe you don't slice it, um, in that much detail. Um, but I think in general, the key to the strike zone is down, um, being able to, to dominate the bottom of the strike zone, I think is, is critical generally all of the best guys in the game are really good down. They, they're really good in the bottom third of the strike zone. Um, and I think for a variety of reasons, one being there's just more pitches taken in that region than any other part of the zone. Um, you're also seeing a trend in, in breaking ball usage, you know, in, in a lot of cases in, the, in at the major league level, teams are throwing more breaking balls than fastballs, you know, so you're seeing fastball velocity rise, um, but you're seeing fastball usage decline, you know, generally across the game. Um, and, and breaking balls, you know, we throw breaking balls to the bottom of the strikes, you know, we don't throw breaking balls to the top third um, intentionally. So um, there's just more opportunities at the bottom of the strike zone. And if I'm an amateur coach working with amateur players, you know, getting guys to really hone in on how do we capture the bottom of the zone would be, um, I think, a really good place to start. Perfect. So with, um, with some of the guys on TV and I, you know, I haven't coached the catching position in a while, but, uh, you see, um, 
put their glove out to a certain spot and then you see them uh, slightly relax it and then bring it back up right before the pitch is coming in. Can you walk us through, you know, why that is? Is that something that you teach? It's something that you see a lot, but I'm just curious about it. This is something that's been on my mind actually uh, fairly recent, you know, trying to figure out where, you know, this pre-pitch hand load, you know, glove rhythm um, originated from. Cause you know, when, when I watch other positions on the field, you know, I can't say that I see anybody else have to load their hand, you know, in preparation to catch the ball, you know, even at, at high velocity, right. You look at the, the first baseman when he was, he's receiving a, a throw from a, a pitcher, you know, a pitcher goes quick move and, and sometimes, you know, you know, throw the ball fairly firm, um, you know, when attempting to pick somebody off and I, and I don't see the first baseman drop their glove or quarter turn or, or, um, do any of the stuff that traditional catchers utilize, mm-hmm. um, you know, same thing on, let's say a double play pivot, you know, a, a ball to the second baseman, he jump turns and, and feeds to the shortstop. I don't, I don't see the, you know, quarter turn his hand, you know, drop his glove, you know, do anything, you know, other than just present the glove and catch the ball. So we've actually gone away from doing any of that stuff from a catching standpoint. We've, we've, tried to create really good angles, you know, with, uh, from a targeting standpoint, you know, generally a low target, um, and, and really work to just leave it there. And, and it's been a little uncomfortable for guys at first, but I think that the hand load and the pre-pitch rhythm stuff does a lot of guys more damage than, than good. You know, if you look at, you know, the worst pitch framers in baseball, you know, almost exclusively you could, you could find the flaw, you know, in their pre-pitch preparation, right? Okay. The guys that their, their glove goes up, you know, as the pitcher's going through his delivery or they quarter turn, you know, you know, counterclockwise with their hand and then have to rotate back down to, to catch a, a low strike. You know, they fade their glove or absorb it way too close to their body and then have to, you know, extend all the way back out. So, I think largely, you know, less is more. And if we can minimize that move and just create really good glove angle and, and really consistent target height and that's it. And, and, you know, work to the catch from, from that position, as opposed to starting there doing something else and then having to go back there. I think all that stuff impacts our timing, um, our timing, you know, if compromised impacts our ability to, to manipulate the ball effectively um, so I think targeting is, is a really, really important thing. And one of the major flaws that I see in, in not only the bad pitch framers, but a lot of amateur players in general is they just do, they do way too much, um, in preparation to catch. And, you know, I think would really benefit from at the very least minimizing, if not eliminating all of that and just presetting, you know, the target and, and going from there. Cool. Well, you've mentioned several different times about how important receiving is. And, you know, do you mind sharing a couple of your favorite drills or especially some different verbiage that you use uh, on a regular basis? Yeah, there's there's a couple different styles. If you, if you look at, um, you know, across the big leagues, for example, and, and I think major league players are, are, are really good models, right? And, and I've heard coaches in the past say, well, don't do what big leaguers do. They're big leaguers. And, and that's never really resonate, you know, resonated well with me. You know, why would we not want to do what the most advanced players in the world are doing? Sure. Um, you know, you know, there's there's certain things that you could argue that um, are not good examples of maybe how you should play the game. And, you know, but generally from a skill standpoint, I, I think what those guys do is, you know, the, the model for how everybody should attempt to do it. And, um, you know, but but anyway, back to your question, you know, from a receiving standpoint, if you look at major league players, there's generally two styles. There's guys that start, um, you know, they target a little bit closer to their body, you know, with the arm has flexion in it and they extend, you know, to catch the ball. So I would call that, you know, uh, flexion to extension, you know, that's a, a, a Tyler flowers or Tony Walters. Those guys start with a deeper target, right? They extend and catch at extension. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's the, the opposing style would be, um, extension to flexion where you got guys that target further out front and for, at extension. And as they receive the baseball, they work to flexion. So uh, more of an absorbing style where the arm is starting to, to break or bend 
um, during the act of catching. So those are generally the, the two styles. In either scenario, you're catching the ball at extension. Um, it's just a matter of where you start. You either start tighter to the body and work to out to catch, or you start out there, catch, and and work towards your body. So either way, I think the catch always happens, you know, at extension, you know, and then how you, how you manipulate the ball from there, um, you know, can vary. Um, so I think that's an important distinction. Um, I think generally the guys that are working from extension to, to flexion are more effective. Now there's, there's plenty of guys that are doing it at a high level the other way from, from flexion to extension, but I think it requires, elite elite timing right to, to be able to attack a pitch where you're now you're cutting distance you're cutting time you have to make an earlier decision um in terms of where this pitch is, is going to end up and also account for any late movement um you know so I, I think it's it's much more difficult um but can be done I, I think if i'm coaching an amateur player you know i'm, I'm probably pushing their target away from their body and 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 really focusing on manipulating the ball from extension to flexion. I think there's just, you have more margin for error. You don't have to make as, as early of a decision. And, uh, and, and then also the, the manipulation is happening as you're catching it, as opposed to, you know, after, um, I see a lot of young players that, you know, they extend to catch, you know, they have to now control the momentum of the pitch, right. And then try to, redirect it, you know, in an attempt to move. And I think the, the movement or the manipulation just happens too late. It's kind of a two piece move. It's a catch control and then move. And I think that that really lacks deception um, unless your timing is, is really, really elite. Perfect. Now the next, uh, the next area that I wanted to really focus on. And I, again, I appreciate you going so in depth and receiving it. I'm taking notes furiously over here going, man, I didn't even think about half of this stuff. And, and you're, uh, we probably haven't even scratched the surface on what you do on a daily basis. But the next aspect of catching is we've got to throw some guys out, right? And so mm-hmm. yeah. uh, going back to my very first question, which I'm an amateur, how would you teach me footwork? And you know, what are you looking for regarding that? And let's start at second base because that's probably the one that will be most prevalent. But whenever I was growing up, it was, Take a, it was catch it, transfer it at your ear, take a big right step, left step, and then throw. And I, again, that's uh, looking back going, uh, I don't know if that was the best thing I could possibly be doing. Coach me up. Yeah, I think, you know, regardless of the position you start in, you know, whether it's a, a traditional secondary or a, uh, maybe even a, a, a knee down, a right knee down, a couple of things have to happen, right? And they have to happen fast. I think the, catchers need to get the ball to their throwing hand as, as fast as possible. So I think encouraging a transfer that's kind of out in front, as opposed to raking the glove all the way back to our ear, then trying to take a, take the ball out of the glove really deep. You know, it doesn't promote um, a, any margin for error in case there's any kind of mishandle doesn't give you a lot of time to try to establish a grip. Not that you always can doesn't really promote a, a really clean, you know, takeaway in terms of the arm path and shape. Um, so I think getting the ball to your throwing hand out in front of your body allows you to do a lot of those things, you know, as the rest of the sequence um, starts to develop. So getting the ball to your hand is as fast as possible. Um, the next piece is, is getting your right foot in the ground. I think one of the common flaws with, with a lot of catchers, especially amateur players, is, is that they, they've been told their whole life to gain all this ground towards mm-hmm. second base. Right, and you see these four, six, maybe six feet is aggressive, but you see this this exaggerated distance covered, you know, in an attempt to to quote unquote gain ground. And I think when the steps become really long and the footwork becomes long, then you know the arm action becomes really long and the takeaway becomes long. And and I think you know generally the arm is waiting for the the lower half to engage the ground to be able to then initiate the sequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't want the arm to wait. We, we, we want to get the right foot into the ground as fast as possible. Um, so then, you know, the chain can work efficiently and, and the, the arm is, is not delayed and, and, or have to elongate the takeaway, um, to wait for the feet. So in order for the, the, those things to all pair up, I think getting the ball to your hand as fast as you can, getting your right foot into the ground, 
Um, and then lastly, getting your head and, and even your left shoulder kind of on your target. You know, those are the probably the three teach points for me or the three cues that I think are most critical to a high level throw, you know, getting the ball to the hand, getting the right foot in the ground and, and getting your head and lead shoulder, you know, on your target. Um, and I think if you can do those things, you're in a really good position to throw and you can get the ball out, you know, quick. I think the key is, is getting the ball out of your hand velocity and, and making a strong thrower are, is, is really, really important. And I don't want to discredit arm strength, but I think it's, it, it is a, a weapon um, if you possess it. But getting the ball, the release, I think, is, is, is really, really important. Getting the ball from the catch out of your hand, I think there's a lot of time that can be shaved in that part of the equation. And then learning to throw with, with, with accuracy and understanding what a quality miss is. And, you know, I, I think reducing the tag time, I think that's a, uh, a part of the equation that doesn't get talked about a lot. Is It's all about pop to pop. But I, a stat that I like, would prefer is is you know pop to to tag right we we often don't account for how long it takes for the the, the middle infielder to catch the ball and then apply the tag and, mm-hmm. and if our if the goal if the intended goal or the intended outcome is to record an out right that's that's a really critical piece so being able to throw with accuracy reduce the the tag time and and understanding what a quality misses and for me down is always better than up i think I shouldn't say always, but generally, you know, on a stolen base attempt, you know, down is, is better than up. Anytime a middle infielder has to elevate the, the, the likelihood of recording out are, are really, really slim. I think it, a buried throw in the dirt, um, we at least have a chance to record an out. And anytime we have to elevate an infielder, it's that likelihood is significantly decreased. And then also you talk about East and West, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the second base side is, is a, a much better miss than the shortstop side. I think we, we can't miss to the left of the bag um, for the same reason, you know, middle infielders can work up the line and, and still be able to apply, you know, high tags to the shoulder, to the head. Um, but if a shortstop has to go backhand, you know, to the, to the shortstop third base side of, of the diamond, you know, the, again, for the same reason, the chance of recording out are really slim. So, down is better than up and, and right is better than left and, and getting the ball out of the hand as fast as you can somewhere in that, in that window, um, you know, and then prioritizing, you know, middle infielders and, and working specifically on their ability to, to then finish plays, I think is, is generally a, an undertop skill and mm-hmm. a huge part of, you know, it, generally if you look at the best throwing catchers, you know, at any level, there's, there's probably a, a couple pretty good middle infielders, um, that have some feel around the bag and, and, and that are finishing plays, you know, um, I think that's in, in my experience, you know, any catchers that I've had that have, you know, thrown out runners at a really high clip, there's two guys in the middle of the diamond that you know are responsible for a lot of those. Sure. That makes a ton of sense. And so let's go ahead and move to third. Like what, what, how does that footwork change and what are you looking for there? It doesn't change really, um, you know, as opposed to a, a directional step, you know, to towards second base, you know, it's, it's more of a, a drop step, you know, behind, especially if, if you have to clear a, a right-handed hitter. Um, but I think the, the, the general cues are the same, you know, get the ball to the hand, reduce that step, you know, still trying to get the right foot in the ground as fast as possible and getting my left shoulder and head, you know, on my target and, and getting the ball out as, as quickly as I can. Um, so I, not a lot of things I think change on, on that, in that regard to third base. I think in a lot of ways, you know, third base is stolen generally off the pitcher. And, you know, I think it starts there with the ability to control the run game on the mound. You know, you can really limit, you know, stolen base attempts to, to third, but, you know, but I think the footwork is, is not that different, you know, and I think the, the teach points are, are the same. Cool. And, uh what if we're trying to back pick a guy at first? You know, same, I think pitch height in, in this regard, you know, comes into play. I think you talk about right-handed sliders that are you know down in the ground or towards the, towards the dirt, maybe not in the dirt. I think teaching guys uh, or giving them a, the option of being able to, to kind of throw from their knees as opposed to, you know, working from a more elevated pitch, you know, on their feet. Um, but it's still a, at any base throwing is throwing and it's still a right, left throw. And, and those, those 
basic fundamentals um, of getting the ball to the hand, getting the right foot in the ground, head and shoulder on target, I think apply to regardless of the base. The other, the only other thing I'd add on back picks is, is I think we, we I caution our guys to only back pick in, in situations where, you know, we have some count leverage. Um, anytime we, we hop up to, to make a throw, whether it's on a steal attempt or, or a back pick, um, we're really limiting our ability to, to capture that pitch as a strike. I think umpires miss that pitch a lot. They miss pitches in the zone when catchers pop up to throw. And although I like when I watch amateur players, I like the aggressiveness. I like the, the no fear mentality that, that you have to have if you're an aggressive thrower and a guy who likes to back pick a lot. I, I really do like that component of it, but I do see players do it a lot unnecessarily and they're losing strikes as a result. Now, if a guy's hung up and he's, you know, dead out, then, you know, you'll, you'll trade an out for a strike. But um, a lot of times guys are just throwing just to throw and, you know, losing strikes as a result. So, um, you know, if we're in that 2-0, 3-0 count where, you know, we need a strike, I think it's, you know, a really poor time to, to attempt a back pick. Oh, that's a great point. So something else that I think that, we can all help catchers with and, and to do a better job of especially at the amateur level and that's communication. And I, I'm sure you talk with your guys a lot about it. And, uh, and I know that head coach or coaches in general are constantly talking to the catchers about how to communicate on the field. And it just seems like there's not a lot of communication that goes on, if that makes sense. And so what, what, what do you look for, or at least from an amateur level and, and you can, probably go into some pro ball stuff too but how how do you look for and how do you teach communication between uh, catchers and pitchers you know talking about with the infi- the infielders and what's going on in the different situation and then uh, we'll hit on umpires here in just a minute too I'm sure but but how does that communication on the field work and and do you have any advice on how we can teach them to do better a better job of it you know I, I think presence leadership um, you know a lot of that is, is dictated based on the, the personality of of your personnel, right? The, the personality of the catcher. And, and I think sometimes we make a mistake when we, we, we try to ask a, a guy, you know, the new starting catcher to, to try to lead or have the same presence as the guy that just graduated um, when you're dealing with maybe two completely different personalities. Um, so I think you can lead effectively and, and in essence communicate effectively in a variety of different ways, but I think it needs to match the personality of, of the player you're dealing with. And, and it's unfair to ask him to be somebody he's not, but instead, you know, learn how he can be an effective communicator within, you know, the personality that makes him who he is. So, you know, some guys are really vocal and are out in front and, you know, look at me and, and this is what we need to do. And, and other guys are a little bit more reserved and introverted and, and, Maybe they rely more on, uh, you know, nonverbal communication. And most guys are probably somewhere in the middle, and they use a combination of, of both those things. But um, I think it's important to let the player be the best version of, of themselves um, and let them know that it's okay to, to lead and communicate in a variety of different ways. So, you know, I, we encourage both. The, the nonverbal is, is just as effective as the verbal. You know, when you're talking specifically with pitchers, you know, I, I think an important component is is I think too often we, we tell pitchers what not to do. Hey, got to be careful with this guy or, hey, don't miss in or this guy hammers breaking balls. So like, look yeah. out. You know, I'm not, I think like anything, we should be promoting, you know, what we want them to do, not mm-hmm. what we want to try to avoid. You know, so, hey, we're need you to throw your slider down and away, right? And, and it's going to have a lot of success against this guy. Or here's what we're going to do. We're going to go fastball in, fastball in to soft away, right? And, and you know, so being um, a little bit more direct about what we want to happen, not, you know, what we're hoping, you know, doesn't happen. Um, so I think there's, there's an art and an um, attack to, you know, how and, you know, the power of our words and, and how we can, you can say the same thing in, in two different ways. And, you know, one has a really a, a positive you know, spin on it. And one is a, a really cautious, you know, with a, maybe a negative connotation. And, and I, I think your, your words are, are feeding imagery and, and whatever you say, you know, I think pictures are going to internalize and, 
and hopefully visualize. And, and if it's don't do this or he'll hit a homer, you know, I think we're, <laughs> we're, we're portraying the wrong, uh, images and, and not projecting confidence and, and conviction and, and, you know, whatever it is we're, we're hoping to execute here on this next pitch or this next at bat. Yeah, the whole time that you are talking about that, I I can't help but uh, picture Crash Davis walking to the mound to talk to Nuke and talking about how the ball had a stewardess on it. And I just, man, I, yeah. So that's, so a lot of that stuff doesn't go on? Yeah, I mean, there's a time and place for, for that stuff. I think sometimes you can, you can break the ice and anytime you could, you could, you know, get a picture to, to smile or to, to laugh, I think, you know, it's, uh, it can be an effective strategy as well. I love it. I love it. Well, you you sound like a guy that, and just getting to know you a little bit more personally now, uh, that is constantly learning. You talk about being a teacher at heart. You talk about being a guy that's curious. Well, what's something that you yourself has learned lately that's gotten you really excited? Oh, that's a that's a tough question. Um, you know, I, I do take a lot of pride in you know, you know, continuing education and and trying to stay curious and, and, you know, I've really been blessed to, to be a part of the Minnesota twins. And I feel like our, our player development staff is, um, you know, full of a, a lot of inspirational people that are doing some really creative things. And, and so it's, it's been a lot of fun from that standpoint, you know, probably the most recent, I guess, thing that's, that's surfaced is, is stuff on kind of 4d motion technology. And, and right now there's a lot of metrics on, you know, there's there's framing metrics that tell you which catchers do it well or which catchers do it poorly, but there's really no process oriented metrics that tell you, you know, why this, this player is effective at creating strikes or why player B um, is not very good at it. So we don't know a lot about the movement or the movement qualities that, that make, you know, effective receivers or, or ineffective receivers. Uh, so I think that the next, um, you know, evolution, I guess, of, of, from a catching standpoint is, is using motion capture, you know, 4d technology to, to learn, learn more about, you know, these are the things that need to happen, or these are the things that correlate to positive outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now that, that information just doesn't exist. Um, definitely doesn't exist publicly. Um, and maybe there's, there's certain organizations or people in the private sector that are, that are doing this, but it's largely unavailable. And, uh, it's something that I'm, you know, really curious about. Very cool. Well, I've got to ask you the resource question. And so you, uh, again, a guy that learns a ton and uh, on a daily basis, really, but what are some of the different coaching resources that have changed your coaching career? Honestly, a lot of them, you know, are not very, or not directly related to, to coaching. I think there's, there's takeaways from, you know, books and, and other educational resources, you know, across, a lot of disciplines and uh, some recent books that I, that I've read that I think have really, that I've, I've taken a lot away from is, you know, um, just finished a book called dare to lead by Brene Brown. It's uh, talks a lot about vulnerability and it's very and good. I, I think if, if I've done anything well this last year, you know, I, I think it's, it's can be really powerful when you tell a player that you don't know, right. Mm-hmm. And they ask a question and you say, you know what, I'm, I'm not sure. And, I think for a long time that was frowned upon in, in our industry and that, you know, coaches were always supposed to have the answers and it was this, this sign of weakness. If, if a player asked a question and, and, you know, you couldn't answer it directly. And, you know, I, once I really started saying, I, I don't know, I'm not sure, but let's figure it out. Um, I, I think I developed a lot of trust with our, with our players and, and just demonstrated that, Hey, we're in this together and, and, and we're, we're, you know, pushing the envelope and, and trying some, some new things. And, and, you know, with that is a lot of trial and error and a lot of experimentation. And, and, you know, I've, I've learned to be vulnerable in that space and, and not pretend to be, you know, the expert at all times. And, and, you know, I'm in the foxhole with you and we're, we're trying to learn this together. And um, so I, I think that's, can be a powerful, um, you know, teaching strategy just um you know in your attempt to connect with players and is is to allow yourself to, to be vulnerable um so the, the dare to lead book by Brene brown is, is all about vulnerability 
you know, another, another book that stands out is, is a book called the one thing um, by Gary Kelly. I think, you know, a lot of coaches are very ambitious, right. And, and for good reasons and, and they want to do all these things and, and do them all perfect. And I think when we get uh, at, at the end of the day, when if our attention is, is split a hundred different ways that we just, we end up not doing anything very well at all. Um, you know, it's, we have these lists or, and all these tasks that we want to accomplish. And, but I think identifying what your one thing is and what's the one thing I really want to really dominate and, and um, dig in deeper on and, and really focus a lot of my, my effort and energy into optimizing, you know, and, and defining what that is. And then, you know, developing a process uh, that allows you to, to make real progress towards that. Um, you know, so that was, that's that been a powerful resource and, and really helped, you know, uh, my approach. Um, and then other books on, you know, there's, there's a lot of really good books on, you know, skill acquisition and motor learning and anything in that space. Um, I, I think we have to understand, I think it's our responsibility as teachers, you know, as, as skill coaches that we understand or have some basic understanding of, of motor learning and, and how players acquire and refine skills. Um, I think if, if we don't understand some of those concepts, at, at least on, at a basic level, then um, we're really doing our players a, a disservice. You know, another one is a recent one is the, the culture code um, with Daniel Coyle mm-hmm. also wrote the talent code and, and just how to develop, you know, strong group dynamics and, you know, developing, you know, subcultures within a, a culture for, you know, for me specifically, it's, you know, uh, our catching unit is, you know, it's, we've tried to develop our own culture within the, the larger, you know, culture of, of the organization, you know, mm-hmm. but, but it's all about trying to make connections and, and build strong relationships. And I think when you can do those things and, and you really open the door, um, you know, to, to be able to teach and, and teach effectively. I love that. And read several of those. I'm actually on uh, the Brene Brown book right now and recommended to me from a couple of different people. So I picked it up and it's, it is very, very good. And so I challenge our listeners to go out and pick that one up. I think it's applicable and very in any different space really. And, um, but Tanner, I, I really appreciate the time that you spent with us today and you have gone over all things catching. And so I, I really, I just want to ask you, is there, well, first, let me ask you if, is there any way that if our listeners want to get in touch with you, is there a good way to do so? Yeah, I, I have a, a website that I, I manage uh, sparingly on the side, uh, www.d1catching.com. And, and I've recently, you know, launched a kind of a, a group coaching platform, you know, for amateur uh, catching coaches uh, where we, we kind of share and think tank and, different resources and, and ideas. And, um, so, so that's available, um, online. And I also happy to share, um, my email address, um, which is, you know, d one catching at gmail.com. Okay. Um, so either of those, you know, are, are places where, um, people can easily connect with me also, you know, on social media, uh, at Tanner Swanson, uh, you know, on Twitter is, and also um, have a at D1 catching, you know, Twitter uh, account as well. So any of those, uh, you know, platforms, um, you know, pretty easily accessible and uh, feel free to, you know, send me an email or a direct message and, um, you know, happy to engage and, um, and offer insights if possible. And, and, you know, I think, there's not enough people in the catching space that are really pushing the envelope and, and challenging uh, the status quo. And, and I think we need more voices that, you know, to come forward and, and try to, you know, challenge and, and push the position, you know, to places we haven't seen yet. And I think catching generally is, is, is behind, you know, we're, the game is moving really fast and progressing in a lot of ways. And, and you see a lot of the advances and, you know, tech and data and how that's changed our approach to, to pitching development. And, and now you're seeing in the, in the hitting space and, and how we're using, you know, various resources to, to it's changed how we're teaching the swing. And, and I think catching has generally stayed the same, you know, for a long time. And, you know, I think in my opinion, you know, behind those, those other two spaces and, and, 
you know, so the more dialogue and conflicting ideas, I, I think can often lead to, you know, more creative solutions and, and uh, ultimately kind of push the, the catching position forward. So I'm, I'm happy to engage in, in those types of conversations and would welcome them. I absolutely love it. Well, Ted, I'm just going to open up the mic for you and uh, let you run. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? No, I just thought, I mean, I'd like to wish everybody a, a healthy and fulfilling 2019 season. I want to thank you, Jonathan, for, for having me on the show. I'm an avid fan. I mean that. Um, I, I listen to, to most episodes and uh, appreciate your work and more than anything, appreciate you having me and, and uh, wish everybody the best of luck this year. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.